podcast extra features Kathleen Hall, a nurse for over 40 years at the AMSN 2019 convention in Chicago. She's doing a down and dirty GI review. She starts out talking about the liver for about 15 minutes, so I've cut that out so it kind of is going to seem like it starts in the middle when she gets talking, but um, it's because you don't need that information. But the rest of it is all going to be really good to review for your GI exam. Here you go. Enjoy. Thank you very much, and I'm very pleased to be here. Let me first tell you some things that weren't in my introduction. 42 years ago, I began my nursing career as a staff nurse on a med surge oncology unit. We had 40 beds. I was the only RN on 3 to 11 shift, but I learned a lot because I had a great preceptor, Linda Peebles, and I had a great team with me, two LPNs, Pam Earhart and Carolyn Lesby. See, you can you remember the people who really matter to you. And two great nursing aides, Dawn Williams and Pat Lemon. And they really taught me a lot about nursing. And I learned how to care for people who were dying and going home and telling my parents, I'm only 21, I'm too young for this, you know. And, uh, uh, but also feeling great elation if somebody uh, required CPR and we were able to get ROSC, although it wasn't called ROSC back in the day. So that was my career 42 years ago. And in January, I am going to retire. And so here it is, yeah, hey. <laughs> And so here it is. This is my last formal presentation to a large group, and I come full circle back to my med surge roots. So I appreciate all the work you do because you are the unsung heroes. I remember how good I got at nursing care. So before I moved into ICUs, I thought I was really a really good nurse. Master of much, you know, we say, you know, you know, master of nothing, it's master of much in med search because you're working with very little data but your instincts, your eyes, and your experiences. We have more data now, we have more ways to monitor, but it's still what's between your ears that really matters. So I thank you for that. So today's presentation is going to be a GI review. This is for, uh, this is designed for you if you want to prepare for a certification exam, if maybe you've been out of clinical practice for a while and you're trying to kind of get geared up again, if you are a preceptor or a coach and want to feel like you've got to be the smartest person in the room today with your new uh, Orient, uh, or if you just want to come and have a validation of all the things that you know. So I'm going to cover um, uh, everything from the diagram down in an hour or in 55 minutes, and we'll see just how that goes. So we're going to talk about these specific maladies. Everything I have is also in your slide deck, you know, that's uh, in the presentation. So it's, a, it's rapid fire, it's quick, it's assuming that you know a lot of this data, and we're going to just move it uh, into pockets so that maybe you can understand some of it a little bit better. Immune disease that causes hepatitis and therefore leads to cirrhosis. NASH becomes uh, sclerosed or stenotic. Where does that waste product go? Back into the liver. So it becomes... Now, cirrhosis is a, is a process that happens because toxifying the liver again. Cirrhosis is a, is a process that happens because the liver cells themselves are actually damaged. 
Cirrhosis is like, I make an analogy, it's like a heart attack in the liver. You know, when you have a heart attack, you lose blood flow, you lose uh, uh, nutrients to the, to the heart muscle. The heart muscle dies, it becomes fibrotic, and then non-functional. It doesn't contract, contract or conduct electricity. It doesn't do its job. Well, cirrhosis is very much like that. So the liver cells are damaged from toxins, from inflammation, from metabolic derangements, toxins primarily being uh, alcohol. Then those cells die and they're replaced by fibrous tissue. So that fibrous tissue doesn't produce albumin. It doesn't make clotting factors. It's not uh, converting glucose into glycogen for storage. The other thing that happens is on that, and you can see the slide, the blue, um, uh, the blue veins at the bottom of the uh, liver, the uh, spleen also feeds into the hepatic, uh, the portal vein, and the spleen becomes engorged because now this fibrotic liver no longer expands and moves with blood flow coming to it. So it becomes just a tough, hard shell rather than an organ that can uh, accept more blood flow and less blood flow and have a little bit of movement in it. So now it, it, that pressure within the liver increases and we get portal hypertension. So the portal vein becomes sclerosed. The portal vein becomes the single area for blood flow to go through the liver and it gets backed up, much like the highways here around Chicago at rush hour. So what happens with that as the splenic vein, which feeds into the portal vein, gets more uh, engorged, it makes the spleen enlarged and, a, and an enlarged spleen won't make platelets. So you get a patient who has liver failure, who has cirrhosis, and they're often bleeding, they bruise easily, and they might have a platelet count of 52,000 instead of 252,000. So the other thing that happens with cirrhosis then is you don't make, uh, you don't have the ability to secrete or excrete bilirubin. So where does it go? You get that nice copper tone glow on the skin, the eyes, the itchy skin, um, because the bilirubin has to go somewhere because the liver can no longer excrete it through the bile ducts. Your serum albumin concentration falls, so that means there goes your colloid osmotic pressure. So there goes the volume, the impetus for volume to stay within your vascular system. So these patients look like the Pillsbury Doughboy. They have a lot of pit edema. They have, they, their weight may go up, but the weight, the water, the fluid is not in their vascular space. It's in the extravascular space because there's no albumin pulling it into the vascular space. And the other thing that happens then is they may be very, look very fluid overloaded and have a lot of uh, weight gain, and yet they're hypotensive because the volume isn't in their bloodstream. They develop a form of diabetes. It's a form of insulin resistance related to the liver failure. And what we see in the unit I work in, we have, uh, we uh, take care of patients who've had liver transplants. And it's wonderful to see if they have a successful liver transplant as they start to recover, their insulin requirements go down and they are often no longer living with diabetes after their transplant transplant because the liver got fixed. So they have a diabetes related to their liver function rather than a pancreatic failure. In later stages, many of these patients with liver failure are chronically hypoglycemic because 
they no longer have the ability to store that extra glucose in their liver. So they're only always living on whatever glucose they've just taken in. So they are often hypoglycemic. And finally, the hepatic encephalopathy of, of liver disease, I'll talk about that briefly, but it is, it is um, crippling for the patient and for their family members, and they can lose a job, they can become disabled and become unable to function. And that can be in a much higher uh, proportion than their actual liver disease. So sometimes encephalopathy is the worst part of the liver disease, let alone all the other physiologic changes. In terms of labs, their serum albumin will be low, their PTT is going to be elevated, their bilirubin levels up, transaminase up, platelet count way low. And so you're going to worry about, can you pull out that central line? Can you put in a central line? What kind of IV access are we going to be able to have? Are they going to bleed, bleed, bleed after we try to just do a, a peripheral IV stick? In terms of diagnosis, there's lots of diagnostic, diagnostic mechanisms. An ultrasound can, can see cirrhosis, and EGD can definitely see varices and, and cirrhosis. And finally, the ultimate is a liver biopsy that's usually done. So clinically, these patients are tired. They're walking around a whole lot of volume, a whole lot of fluid. They're jaundiced. They've got a big liver, so they've got maybe some just mild abdominal pain because they, their liver is enlarged. Men may feel like they need to wear a bra. They have a lot of gynecomastia, which is embarrassing. It's limiting for them, and it's, and it's a, a sign of their disease. And finally, the hypoglycemia, as I've talked about before. So because of all this volume overload, patients have a high risk for respiratory compromise. You know, sometimes you say, okay, well, if the a liver failure, if the cirrhosis is a cause of, uh, is caused by alcohol, often cigarettes and alcohol kind of, kind of go together there. Uh, so they may have a component of COPD because of their lifestyle. But even if they've never smoked a moment in their life, they can have a high risk for respiratory compromise. So your patient admitted with liver failure or uh, hepatic encephalopathy, you have to worry about a little bit of respiratory failure component. Part of that is just because if they have a lot of fluid collection in their abdomen, uh, that presses up against the diaphragm, and the diaphragm may not be able to expand as readily. They can also get effusions, so they can get pleural effusions that happen because of fluid shifts across the diaphragm from the abdomen. So they may have respiratory compromise even though their problem is below the diaphragm. Variceal hemorrhage, we know that about 50% of patients who die from cirrhosis die because of bleeding. So just a massive rupture of a, of a varices. And varices can happen from the esophagus down to the rectum and anywhere in between. And that is just an outflowing or a, it's an it's a increased pressure on venous flow because the venous return through the portal vein, through the inferior vena cava, and through the liver is impaired because of that fibrotic liver. Patients can develop a spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, again, because of all that relative hypertension in the abdomen. If you have this engorged liver that is not pliant, if you have veins that are maximally full of blood and cannot move through the liver and get to the, to, to the superior vena cava, then you have a backflow of pressure and you have a risk of an a, a inflammation and engorgement of the intestine. 
and that allows bacteria to translocate across that small intestine lumen and you can develop a bacterial peritonitis. Very, very difficult to treat because you don't have a lot of vascular access within the, the uh, abdomen. So a bacterial peritonitis is often a chronic debilitating uh, uh, situation for a patient to be in. And finally, the hepatic encephalopathy, the, uh, the change in mental state, cognitive ability, memory, coordination, uh, limits patients' abilities to hold a job, participate in, with their family, and to go on and carry on with their life. So they often become despondent over this because they cannot, uh, uh, they cannot clear that. So the encephalopathy is ammonia causing it, and it's just directly toxic to the, uh, uh, to, the, to the brain. So what do we do to get rid of that ammonia? Our good old friend lactulose, not necessarily our greatest friend, but lactulose is the key for that. And finally, I put this picture on here specifically because patients will develop an asteriscus or a flapping tremor, and sometimes it's just a little bit, but sometimes uh, it's so much that it is a noticeable by family members. So I recall a patient who was admitted to my unit who had the flapping tremor and his wife would always sit by his side and hold his hand down as if, okay, if, I, if, I did, if it wasn't so obvious, maybe it'll go away. It was, made me feel very empathetic to her and what she was, was trying to, to cope with and trying to say, well, I'll make that part go away for you. It doesn't. But, Treatment for encephalopathy has mostly to do with reducing protein so that you reduce the ammonia load that is toxic to the brain. Uh, and patients are often hypokalemic as well, so you might be given a lot of potassium supplements of the same. By the way, just an FYI, you know that oral potassium supplementation is almost as effective as IV supplementation. So I know within my organization, we make a concerted effort to go with oral potassium, a lot cheaper, less nursing time to develop, less annoying because nobody's going to complain about their arm hurting with the, with the potassium bowl is going up. Oral is almost as, as bioavailable as IV potassium. But sometimes, you know, it's July 1st every day and you are the smartest person in the room. So remember that one. Oral uh, will work. Okay. All right. So in terms of support for patients who are on your units, protect the airway because it may have respiratory compromise even though their primary maladjustment is liver. Uh, an antidote, if there is a toxin, if the patient had a toxic dose of, say, Tylenol, an antidote is indicated, but there's usually not many antidotes out there. The coagulopathy is often corrected with fresh frozen plasma or platelet counts, but remember, you don't really want to give platelets to somebody unless they're actively bleeding, because otherwise they're not going to work, they're going to be destroyed, and it, it, it serves as nothing but medical waste. Lactulose we talked about, patients may also have a Concomitant renal failure with their liver failure, so they may have, have end stage renal disease or have a need for dialysis. And remember, a lot of sedatives are cleared for the liver, so a dose of Haldol is the gift that will keep on giving and giving and giving. 
Uh, and so you have to be very, very careful about that um, uh, volume that they get. In terms of treatment, they've got to be on a low-sodium diet because, of course, sodium attracts water, and that water wants to go out into the extravascular space, so it only makes them more com uncomfortable in terms of being puffy. We will get, try to give them diuretics to try to pull some of that fluid out. Beta blockers are often done as a way to reduce blood pressure, so reduce some of that portal hypertension. So they're not on the beta blockers for cardiac issues, they're in it to reduce some of that portal hypertension. We may have to remove fluid through the abdomen and paracentesis and fairly regularly. One thing they may get is a, 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 a hepatic shunt, and I'll talk about that for, in a minute, and of course um, antibiotics for the bacterial peritonitis. Now upper GI bleed, we're going really fast through the GI system here. These are all reasons for somebody to have an upper GI bleed. Most common cause, like I said, for people who die of hemorrhage is in um, uh, cirrhosis patients, so always keep that in mind. A little bit of blood out of somebody with cirrhosis is a, is a reason to, cause, uh, to call a rapid response team. Not a whole lot to do about it, but try to clip the loss. And now this is one thing, this is probably a slide you'll want to keep uh, handy with you. You know, we worry about blood loss, but a lot of blood loss happens before we even know it's happening. So if you have a 15% blood loss, loss of blood out of your vascular system, nobody's going to know it unless you're doing orthostatic blood pressures all the time, and I can tell you, I don't think that's happening very often. So, uh, uh, but the patient who says, wow, I'm, all, I'm dizzy, I wasn't dizzy this morning, might be something to it. It takes a 15 to 30% blood loss for you to get tachycardic. And hey, a heart rate of 100 when you've been around 80, well, maybe the wife and girlfriend walk in, in the room at the same time and you've got a little tachycardia. Urine output starts falling a little bit, but again, not enough to necessarily call anybody. And you might have a little bit of a narrow pulse pressure. So that systolic starts to fall a little bit, the diastolic stays the same, but oftentimes it's not enough to say, I wonder if I need a rapid response. I wonder if I need the hospitalist to have a look at this patient. It's not until you have a 30 or 40 percent blood loss, so you've lost like four units of blood until anybody really thinks something bad is happening. So just be caution that subtle signs are what the med surge nurse is known for being able to detect, and that's what you want to keep an eye on. So the patient who has a feeling like this is not going right is a great patient who might be upper GI bleeding, and we haven't quite caught it yet. Okay. So clinically, we're probably going to scope patients, so we're going to go in there and have a look. We might do an angiography to try and find a bleeder and put a coil in it. Uh, in endoscopy, there's lots of different variations in terms of treatment, wonderful things, instead of just going in there and cutting out a piece of the stomach and so hoping for the best and sewing it back together. The other procedure it's done, especially if the GI bleeding is caused by uh, uh, liver cirrhosis, is a TIPS procedure. And a TIPS is basically a bypass in the liver. So what they do is they snake a stent, and uh, you can see uh, the stent in that um, uh, in the uh, uh, slide there, a stent that adds an extra vein, an extra route for blood to go through that fibrotic, tough liver. 
And so you add one extra, it's like an extra lane on the freeway, all of a sudden opens up at rush hour. Hallelujah, I'm getting in it, you know. And so that will often decrease the vascular uh, pressure and cut down some of the pressure on those varices and reduce GI bleeding and help the patient uh, prolong uh, their, their time until they would need a transplant or per perhaps help them avoid a transplant entirely. Now, peptic ulcers, we've known for a long time, are, are exacerbated by a, an acid production within the stomach, but we also know that H. pylori is a main uh, culprit of uh, peptic ulcers. When we talk about peptic ulcers, again, bright red blood rectum or melida, uh, if it's bright red blood rectum, we usually think, uh, which is the hematochesia, we often think of lower GI bleeding, because remember, if it's upper GI bleeding, that hydrochloric acid changes that uh, the proteins in the blood, the blood, it breaks down and it becomes dark. So dark blood usually means it started in the stomach, had a chance to get uh, kind of broken down by hydrochloric acid and then found its way through the system. Bright red blood, some bleed or some arterial bleed has just happened immediately. And again, same labs for the GI problems as, uh, uh, as we see often with liver. You're gonna go on a road trip or somebody's gonna come to the bedside with an endoscopy or they're going to go down to interventional radiology. Again, remember, these patients, if they're going to be, if you're in a, in a unit where they do bedside endoscopy, remember, even if the patient does not have respiratory problems, they may have respiratory compromise during the endoscopy, as you can see by the crazy, uh, you know, O2 setups that have to be, uh, uh, you know, instigated with, uh, with scopes. Peptic ulcer, one thing that we don't see often anymore is gastric lavage. So I'll say that that has been replaced by endoscopic repair. We found gastric lavage really doesn't help, but it does uh, alter your electrolytes, so we often don't see it. The one exemption of that is in a patient who has cirrhosis. So gastric lavage could be helpful because remember, blood is protein. So if that blood sits in the gut, and then gets broken down, you've got a whole bunch of ammonia that's got to be cleared by a liver that can't clear ammonia anymore. So just a, something to connect there. Pharmacologically, it might be any of these kind of uh, antacid therapies, and that'll depend on the, the medication panel at your organization. We have to protect their airway. We've got to find where the bleeding is and stop it. We know all bleeding stops eventually, but we want it to stop sooner than that. Okay, now we'll move down to the lower GI tract. Lower GI bleeding can happen from any of these um, uh, various maladies, and it's very difficult to detect because there's so much organ within the lower GI tract, everything below the, um, uh, below the stomach. Okay, so in terms of diagnosis, we might have many different diagnostic categories similar to other GI bleeding. This is what keeps the gastroenterologists, uh, uh, you know, helps them pay their mortgage and keeps them extremely valuable because they can uh, uh, do so many interventions for us without having to take a patient to surgery. In terms of abdominal emergencies, there's infarction, obstruction, and perforation. All bad, bad, bad. Okay, so a bowel infarction or mesenteric infarction, we often talk about, is a problem where you have the intestinal wall becomes ischemic because the blood flow to that intestinal wall is 
uh, is not adequate. We often see it in people who have atherosclerosis. So think of this, the person who had a AAA, the person who had cardiac surgery. I can tell you about a patient I saw in my unit recently who had an AICD removed because he had a lot of abdominal pain and it was uncomfortable for him. And he infarcted his bowel afterwards. How does that happen? We're just taking that thing out. Well, if you need an AICD, my money's on atherosclerosis is one of your problems. If you have atherosclerosis in your coronary arteries, there's no reason to doubt that it's not in the vascular system that supplies your large and small intestine. So any re reduction in blood flow that happens to the heart, to the muscles, can also impact the mesentery as well. So atherosclerosis, surgery on the aorta where there's clamping, a patient who has a hypercoagulable state, such as a patient who has cancer, and a patient who has a known history of even DVTs or pulmonary embolus can throw a clot to their uh, mesenteric uh, circulation, and so they can have bowel infarction. So these patients are sick from the onset, so they might be coming to you rule out uh, 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 acute abdomen, rule out sepsis or some vague diagnosis like that. They're gonna hurt like crazy and have very uh, rigid, very sensitive uh, uh, pain to, to palpation. They're, you're probably not gonna hear any bowel sounds. They're going to be dehydrated and they're gonna be look septic. You're gonna probably be doing your sepsis alert. So for them, it's very complicated to figure out what the problem is. They're going to have a very elevated BUN. So that's something you're going to see right off. And that's the dehydration talking. They may have a variety of labs that are elevated and off, but it's very hard to pinpoint uh, the uh, exact diagnosis. Their stool, if there is stool, it'll be quiet positive, but that might that's not usually a stat uh, result uh, unless you're doing it on, on unit testing. So they're going to need somebody to go in there either through a sigmoid or angiography and have a look and, and try to determine what the, uh, where the ischemia is in. Oftentimes they have to go to surgery and have a look at the, at the bowel itself and you're going to be, when they come back to you, if they're coming back to your unit, you're going to be, uh, you're going to see an NG tube of course for decompression and you're going to be probably putting up a lot of lactated ringers and a lot of uh, potassium, magnesium, calcium replacements. They may also go to the ICU for a day or two and come to you after they have slightly recovered from that surgery, but they usually still have very high needs once they are transferred to the regular nursing unit. In terms of intestinal obstruction, two types. There's functional, also known as paralytic obstruction, so functional obstruction, paralytic obstruction, paralytic ileus, all the same thing, and there's mechanical obstruction. So with the mechanical obstruction, that one's easiest because that just means you've got a tumor, you've got an occlusion within the lumen of the intestine. A functional or paralytic obstruction means the, the gut, there's just no mechanical movement of, of uh, flow through the intestine. So it's just stopped dead in its tracks, just like the traffic on, at rush hour. So it's just stopped, 
There's no peristaltic activity going on. So why do those things happen? Well, with mechanical instruction, it depends on where the obstruction is occurring as to the etiology. So somebody who has a small bowel obstruction is likely to have adhesions if they've had numerous abdominal surgeries or a hernia. They may have a volvulus, which is just a twisting of the, uh, of the small intestine. There might be a foreign body that they've ingested or a tumor. Large intestine more likely to be strictures versus adhesions. So a stricture, which would be an internal obstruction, adhesions are often outside and then crunching the, uh, the uh, lumen closed. An intussusception, meaning that you have an invagination of, of the bowel in and of itself. Sometimes that could be fixed just with a barium enema, but sometimes it needs surgical treatment. Fecal impaction, we're all familiar with that, and a diverticulitis. So lots of different rule-outs for patients who have the uh, bowel obstruction. In a patient who has ileus, we're all familiar with people who have abdominal surgery or peritonitis who have ileus, but a person who has just got undergone a trial of sepsis or who has, we know that heavy narcotic use can also cause it, or a pneumonia. So somebody hospitalized for Legionnaire's pneumonia can develop an ileus. And you think, how did that happen? Pneumonia is a known cause for an ileus. So clinically, it depends on where the problem is in terms of the obstruction or the slow, slowness of uh, peristaltic movement. So patients may have crampy epigastric pain in the upper and they may vomit. The lower, it's gonna be crampy, diffuse pain. Again, nobody's happy, distended, and they're gonna be dehydrated. Because remember, the large intestine pulls out all of our flu a lot of our fluid. So that you're gonna be dehydrated if the intestine pulls out the fluid. Uh, it's not working to pull out the fluid anymore. So you're gonna be dehydrated, you're gonna lose that fluid. So in terms of diagnosis, probably going to be a road trip somewhere, patients going somewhere, or GIs coming to the bedside to have a look-see. Okay. So treatment, very similar. This is great. If you're studying for a certification exam, you can kind of click, click, click. Okay, GI, here's the standard interventions. You can use them for about anything. Okay. In terms of GI perforation, this is a tough one. A peptic ulcer that perforates, a bowel obstruction that, uh, that erodes through the wall, appendicitis, or somebody uh, has the losing end of a, of a knife bite. So with clinically, what you see with a perforation, again, a very tough, rigid, lots of pain in the abdomen. And the thing to show you, <coughs> excuse me, the thing to show you on this uh, slide is on the right, you look and you see, wow, there's a big air bubble. But the most important thing is to see that air bubble right below the lung on the left side as you're looking at, this, at the uh, x-ray because that's air under the diaphragm. On the right side, that's a big air bubble in the stomach. So that's something where you say, okay, put an NG tube down there and let them get all that air out of there and they'll feel a lot better. But the most concerning sign is on the left where you have free air under the uh, uh, diaphragm. So that means you have a perforation in the abdomen somewhere. So this is not the person that you wanna send down for an upper GI uh, series because that something's uh, open and, uh, and free and you don't want that contrast, uh, that bearing contrast heading in as well. So their white count is going to be elevated. You don't want to do an upper GI. They're probably going to go see their friendly surgeon. They're going to need an NG tube, and you're going to see a lot of antibiotics for a lot of days. 
In terms of GI surgery, so surgeries on the GI tract, talk just briefly about a couple things. Again, like a review for surgeries that you may or not see, not see very often or if you're prepping for a, uh, uh, an exam. So an esophagogastrectomy is done for esophageal cancer. Luckily, the incidence of esophageal cancer has actually started to fall. It's a squamous cell carcinoma. And what happens is the esophagus is completely resected. The stomach is pulled up and uh, into the chest and then anastomosed to the, just the cup of the remaining piece of the esophagus. So a patient can actually still eat. So that's an esophagogastrectomy. Big complications with that are patients often have problems with aspiration. They don't have as competent of an epiglottis and they have a, a risk um, for aspiration. The other is anytime you go cutting in, in the intestinal tract, you have risk for uh, anastomotic leaks. So these patients often have uh, several returns to surgery to correct things after their surgery. Gastric bypass patients. Many gastric bypass surgeries now are done as an endoscopic or laparoscopic uh, approach, but patients who undergo gastric bypass, high risk for pulmonary embolus, high risk for anastomotic leaks, high risk for wound infection because of their uh, morbid obesity, makes them at higher risk for, for uh, wound infection, and also for anastomotic leaks because to close everything up with high intra-abdominal pressures makes them at higher risk for impaired wound healing at the areas of the anastomosis. So just show you a picture of it because it is a very complicated surgery with great results in terms of redu reduction of heart disease and also reduction of uh, diabetes. A pancreaticoduodenectomy, try saying that fast, is also known as a Whipple procedure, a very complex surgery done for pancreatic cancer. So the head of the pancreas and the duodenum are removed. And so with that though, that whole pancreas isn't taken out because you need all of those uh, gastric uh, liquids, all that digestive enzymes, and you need your availability of your islet cells for your uh, 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 glucose control. So the head of the pancreas is usually the spot where the cancer is found, and that is taken out, but then the pancreas is anastomosed to a part of the, a piece of the, um, a piece of the, um, uh, jejunum and then uh, onto the ileum and you have then the access for your digestive enzymes to um, uh, to go. Your stomach is then attached to the jejunum there. You can kind of see it there on the slide. So very complicated surgery. Lots to monitor with patients who've had a Whipple procedure. So, and again, hemorrhage and leak. So when you look at hemorrhage and leak, that's frequent vital signs and that's observation of temperature and uh, electrolytes lights going to help you with that okay so when we get into the pancreas we'll talk a little bit about pancreatitis as well here's why the pancreas is su such a tricky organ and that is because you've got a lot of things all converging in one place with the pancreas first of all you have the common bile duct coming out of the liver that bile duct then is is going into the, the common bile duct goes in at the head of the pancreas at the sphincter of odi uh, and the ampulla of bodor. Okay, the ampulla of bodor is a, um, uh, uh, is a little channel. The sphincter of odi is actually the open and closed valve that allows 
the substances from the pancreas and from the from the liver, the bile. So the bile duct and the pancreas both drain through the sphincter of odi that opens and closes into the duodenum. So imagine if the if the bile duct gets clogged or if the pancreas becomes inflamed, or if the sphincter of odi stops working, or if the ampulla of bodor gets a tumor right there growing, you've got a world of hurt. So with the pancreas, first of all, two different types of functions with the pancreas. And so this, I'm just kind of leading into pancreatitis here. First of all, all the digestive enzymes as listed there, and your pancreas helps you keep your acid-base balanced because it is the main provider of bicarbonate into your GI tract. Remember, you've got hydrochloric acid going into your stomach and you've got bicarb coming from your pancreas. Those two then eventually neutralize, mix, and help uh, us digest all that lovely Lumelnadi-sa pizza that you might have had here over the last few days. So, so with the pancreas, we also have endocrine function, which is production of insulin and production of glucagon. So remember, glucagon is released from the pancreas when you say, oh my gosh, I'm sweating. I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of a little weak and I haven't, it's three o'clock in the afternoon and I've been on my feet and I think I better go back to the lounge and have a couple soda crackers or see if I can find a little peanut butter back there. And luckily your pancreas says, I got it, I got some glucagon for you. Your liver says, I got some glycogen, here you go. You can keep going, you got it, you got it, okay? So, and of course, insulin helps us when we have those nice big, uh, big loads and, and uh, can get our glucose back into our cells like they should be. So, acute pancreatitis, we'll move on to that now. About a third of pancreatitis is caused by alcohol use. And I think we kind of have that stereotype, pancreatitis alcoholics. It's really not true. More pancreatitis is caused by gallstone disease than by alcohol. So I think that's probably, that's something to be aware of and, and sensitive to that uh, everybody coming in with pancreatitis uh, didn't fall off the bar stool on their way in, so to speak. Um, so alcohol we know is directly toxic to the pancreas and it doesn't take all that much to hurt the pancreas. Gallstones are a mechanical obstruction and when you think about that, when you go back here, if you think a gallstone going down that green bile duct and then clogging, say right at the ampulla of bodor, well that's going to just back everything up. That's just going to make a whole big bunch of trouble in a small little narrow area. So. How much uh, alcohol does it take uh, to uh, uh, be toxic to the pancreas? It takes about 100 to 150 grams of alcohol <coughs> to be toxic to the pancreas. So I've given you here your um, the calculations. So seven shots, that, that would be a pretty powerful um, uh, amount of liquor, but seven cans of beer on a day when the, the bears are playing might not be out of reach. So uh, uh, anyway, uh, the type, what we do know is the type of alcohol consumed is less important than the amount of alcohol. So, oh, I just drink a little bit of wine. I just drink a liter of wine every other day. It's probably pretty significant compared to, I just have one, I have one mixed drink. So the type is not as important as the amount of alcohol. 
So there you go to kind of limit yourself. Okay, so with acute pancreatitis, the risk factors for uh, pancreatitis are listed here. Smoking doubles your risk for pancreatitis and high triglycerides, but uh, there are also iatrogenic causes of pancreatitis, things that we can cause within the hospital or within the medical community. So this is a, a, a somebody who's having a, an ERCP, an endoscopic retrograde cholangial pancreatography, or e, that's why they call it ERCP. So they put a small scope through, through the uh, duodenum and then put a camera and it's a, a, a continuing uh, 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 catheter that snakes up into the gallbladder, looking for gallstones, looking for sludge, trying to clear out the bile uh, duct. The problem is, if you go into the pancreas, you can also cause pancreatitis by doing this intervention. So we know that acute pancreatitis happens in about 5 to 10% of ERCPs. So you might be trying to diagnose pancreatitis, but you may also uh, poke the bear, so to speak, okay? So patients are dehydrated. They often have pain. The pain happens uh, laying down or walking might make the pain worse. So they might say, if I'm in this position, it's not so bad as that position. That's a pancreas, uh, pancreatitis sign. The patients are oftentimes dehydrated and acutely profoundly ill. So they're often admitted to you as abdominal pain, rule out, whatever, you know. Uh, you're gonna see elevated amylase and lipase, and imaging is probably gonna help you with your diagnosis. You're gonna see most of the acute pancreatitis on a regular nursing unit, on a med surge unit, because myopancreatitis is the most common presentation of pancreatitis. The severe, where they end up in the ICU, uh, is much less so, and even after they overcome their most severe episode, they're coming out to you for a good long stay as well. So in terms of lab tests, what we're expecting is amylase and lipase to elevate. They may be hyperglycemic because the pancreas is sick. It's not making the insulin like it should. White count is up. They're looking septic. Their triglycerides are elevated. They may have an elevated CRP just because they have uh, inflammation going on. So everything in their liver panels are popping up, up, up. And what's the most likely kind of imaging that's going to help? Uh, CT with contrast. So I'll just cut to the chase. You might see all these done, but you're going to see a CT with contrast is going to be the most helpful. And ERCP, like I said, could actually poke the bear and make it worse, but it may also be able to retrieve a gallstone that's blocking the duct. So it's a, a little bit of a calculated risk. And MRCP as an MRI that actually images. That's the most benign, and it can image the um, uh, the bile ducts and the pancreas and give you a good idea as to, oh, I see a stone. We better get an ERCP in there. So a plain MRI or an MRCP can actually be a pretty uh, benign way of uh, uh, managing or uh, managing a diagnosis of pancreatitis. So for patients, you're most likely to see a med surge unit. They're going to have a mild pain, and they make it better in a few short days. The treatment goals, though, are going to be aimed at managing all the other things that happen. See, there's the pancreas right in the middle. So think of this, an inflamed pancreas in the middle of all these other organs. Are they going to react to that inflammation as well? They're definitely going to have a tender abdomen. You got that right. 
and treatment. They're going to need a lot of fluids, so they're going to need good IV access. They're going to have pain. Uh, we know that, but oftentimes patients actually, their pain is associated more with eating rather than other activities. So uh, you're going to be doing a lot of electrolyte, replace, uh, electrolyte replacement also. Now, enteronutrition is preferred over getting long-term access in TPN. We want to still try to use the gut, but they may actually prefer two feedings for a while over a, say, a, a, a full liquid or a, a, you know, a soft diet. So patients go to OR or they might go and require drainage of uh, the pancreas at, because pancreatitis can result in cysts and uh, pseudocysts and walled off necrosis, areas of pus pockets that have to be drained. Usually, though, in acute pancreatitis, they're not going in and doing these interventions immediately. They want the pancreas to settle down and, and declare itself, so to speak. What areas are necrotic? What areas have uh, 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 pseudocysts that can be drained? So it's usually not an acute process. They want to wait. It might be days or weeks and wait to see how the resolution of the pancreas happens before they go in and do uh, another intervention. So these, here's an example of uh, uh, pseudocysts that can happen on the top of the pancreas. At times, you may see that there is intervention to put drains in these pseudocysts flush them out and try to clean them out, or they may be excised. So this is uh, an acute pancreatitis with some pseudocysts. Okay. So what do you want to avoid here? First of all, patients are going to have to look at perhaps a low-fat diet if triglycerides were a, a factor. They may they're definitely be advised not to, um, uh, not to drink anymore. You're, you have a 40% chance of recurrence again if you continue to drink. And, and smoking will exacerbate it as well. So that all the things that make life worth living, you know, drinking and smoking are probably out the door for a person who's got uh, pancreatitis. They may have an ongoing loss of exocrine function, so they may some di digestive enzymes taken orally with their diet. They may have some glucose intolerance as well, so they may have uh, uh, they may have some insulin requirements too, and they may have some um, uh, glucagon production problems within the pancreas as well, and so they may actually have to go the other way with having hypoglycemia. So a lot of education about sensitivity to how your body's feeling and how you react to some of the symptoms. So a key nursing intervention is just here's what you have to be on the lookout for, and here's where you here's when you have to seek some advice from your healthcare provider. About 20 to 30 percent of people will have. And like I said before, you've got a 41% chance of having chronic pancreatitis if you continue to drink. Only 2 to 4% of people who have pancreatic cancer, so oftentimes that's the first thing that concerns them. I'm going to be at Alex Trebek here, and that's usually not the case. So here's a couple questions for you just to wrap things up, and they have to do with if you're taking a certifying exam. So patient with cirrhosis, what lab values would you expect? Just in your mind, that would be, okay, you're going to expect to have an increased PT and PTT. The answer on certifying exams is never call the doctor, just tell you that right off. That's never the answer. Okay, because <laughs> we know what we're doing. Okay, okay. <laughs> All right.
So here's somebody over the last four months, not quite themselves. He's ordered lactulose, okay. Why? It's not to make your life miserable, although it may uh, aid in that, sh making your shift kind of hard. You want it lactulose is to cut down the ammonia levels. Okay. AAA repair guy, post-op day three, comes to you out of the ICU, and he says he's got belly pain. You think, okay, well, you know, his ileus is resolved. He's working on a bowel movement or something. Asked for the bedpan. Oh, there's something you didn't expect in there. So what do you think the problem is? Your worry is they clamped the aorta for that AAA repair. What kind of impairment to blood flow did they make to the mesentery? So uh, infarction. Okay, here's a drinking a bottle of tequila a day. So that's far more than that 100 to 150 grams of alcohol. So early signs of withdrawal. Tacky, sweaty patients. Okay. okay, so lots of varied treatments for patients who have liver failure, pancreatitis, abdominal emergencies, but some of them follow the same kinds of, of therapies. So in general, diagnostic uh, uh, labs, diagnostic interventions in the, in the uh, interventional radiology. They, they don't as often involve uh, surgery. GI hemorrhage, remember, can happen without a lot of overt signs, and intestinal failure can happen because of a failure of, in, of, of uh, peristalsis, obstruction, adhesion. Many things can stop appropriate transit of, of uh, nutrition through the intestine. And the most common complications for GI surgery, you gotta think anastomotic leak and hemorrhage, two things, sprung a leak somewhere. Okay, and if you come upon and you look at this and say, oh, I didn't understand that, for until January 2nd, you can uh, contact me at this address, and I'm happy to entertain your questions. So thank you very much.